You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm recording this on Friday, June 12th, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And this is the show where we talk to guests about broader issues addressed in Medusa's own reporting. Today, we're going to hear from multiple guests about Russian nationalism, about activism in Russia against police brutality, and about the American alt-right and its curious love affair with a deeply mythological Vladimir Putin. We'll also return specifically to several remarks by Mikhail Svetov from last week's show. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, I urge you to listen to the rest of this introduction and then go back to last week. Before we kick off today, I need to take a moment to address my interview with Svetov. I received a lot of feedback from listeners about this. A lot of that feedback was negative. Some objected to the very fact that I interviewed him and included his comments at all. I've seen criticism that what I did amounts to platforming a racist, which is to say I gave him a platform to speak. I know there are people who disagree with this, but I stand by my decision to speak to Svetov and to feature his comments in the show. Like it or not, he wields influence in the Russian opposition, and the Russian Lives Matter hashtag itself recently led to a protest in Moscow where nearly two dozen people were arrested. So I think it's worth hearing what he thinks about these issues, regardless of how progressive or reactionary his interpretations of history are. That said, I recognize that last week's show has shortcomings. Svedev made several remarks about Russian and American history in particular that I left in the show in some ways unchallenged. I edited the show this way for a couple of reasons. One, I never presented Svedev as an expert in history, so I didn't expect listeners to interpret his comments as facts. Second, I am not a historian, and I'm not an especially confrontational interviewer. As a result, some listeners may have heard this interview and concluded that Svetov's comments were unproblematic. That's my fault. And when I say it's my fault, I mean I, Kevin Rothrock, messed up. From time to time, other staff at Medusa are involved in this podcast to different degrees, but this is my show, and I was totally responsible for the last episode. Hilah Cohen, Medusa's English language features editor, who appeared on the last show, very much disagrees with me about the merits of talking to somebody like Mikhail Svetov. She is one of the people who told me that broadcasting my interview with him is harmful. We disagree about that, but we do agree that more could have been done last week. Something else I failed to do in the show was offer much context for the slogan, Russian Lives Matter, or for Mikhail Svetov as a political figure. Listeners hearing about these things for the first time didn't have important information about this stuff. That's another way the show came up short. With this in mind, I'm returning to these subjects today, hoping to fill in some of these gaps. Of course, these issues are huge, and it's impossible to address this stuff exhaustively in a career of Russia analysis, let alone one hour-long podcast. When I came to Medusa and first proposed an English-language podcast, what grew into the Naked Pravda, I described a show with a variety of guests, not just a cast of familiar faces and the usual suspects. I will continue to interview activists, experts, and journalists whose work resonates publicly in Russia, whether others find it misguided, objectionable, or even harmful. This show is a bunch of conversations, but I need to give context. And when my guests make dodgy claims, I need to speak to specialists if I lack the expertise to push back appropriately. So that's my pledge, and I'll do my best to live up to it and to do better. Hilah Cohen, the features editor I just mentioned, wisely pointed out last week that Svetov paradoxically touts civil rights while fixating intensely on rioting and looting. Her observations about Svetov's apparently hidden motivations are one of the main reasons the Naked Pravda is turning to the theme of Russian nationalism this week. The description of what's happening in the U.S. is that police are violently attacking large crowds. Even Svetov acknowledges that the people uh, within those crowds who are rioting or destroying things are a minority, and yet the vast majority of his comments are about those people and are about lauding people who have guns who are trying to protect property from those people rather than protecting people from the police. So that's very telling. You know, nobody is going to intentionally say, like, actually, uh, I don't believe that police violence 
you know, is, is my focus and principle. Like nobody's going to say that their intention is not genuine, but what we have to look at is the logical consistency or inconsistency of what that person actually does and says. In this case, like he's not acting at all like somebody who takes police violence to be a global problem in principle and is acting primarily against that problem. Like if somebody really believed that they would act very differently and they would say very different things. Clearly another motivation is at play here. Yeah, that's a difficult question, of course, because there are many ways, there are many ideological contents of Russian nationalism. Those of you who study Russian nationalism will likely recognize that voice. It's Marlene Laurel, the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and the co-director of the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia. I asked her a basic question that does not have a simple answer. What is Russian nationalism? I usually define it like in, or categorize it in, in, in four groups. You have those who are nostalgic of really the Soviet Union and the empire. So those who would like all the former Soviet countries to integrate Russia so that they kind of really be imperial uh, nationalist. Then you have uh, uh, those who care only for Eastern Slavs. So they care for reintegrating Ukraine and Belarus, maybe Northern Kazakhstan, but they don't, they are not interested by the other part of the former Soviet Union. You have those on the contrary that are kind of pure ethnic nationalists who would like Russia to become an ethnic nation and therefore almost push away the North Caucasus, for example, considered as being foreign. So this one want not to add, but they want to subtract. And then you have what I think are the two mainstream. So that makes three. The, fo the fourth one is what I call Rasiski nationalism, which is the mainstream one, which is that so we keep Russia as it is. We don't really care about what is happening abroad. We don't really care about defending Russians and minorities abroad. But we want Russia, ethnic Russian at home to be in a kind of privileged position, which means not being very favorable to North Caucasian, to say the least, and being quite xenophobic toward labor migrant and introducing a visa uh, regime with Central Asia and the South Caucasus. That's the kind of Navalny nationalism, and that's the most widespread one. And then there is a fifth one, which I don't like calling nationalism, but many people do, which is the state production, right? The kind of state-centric nationalism. I don't like calling it nationalism because then we use nationalism to describe too many things. But if you want to add it, then you have this kind of state-centric nationalism, which is the only nationalism that the state is producing and supporting. It's not supporting the four others. The four others are developed by different groups outside the state structure. The, the state-centric nationalism is the only one that the state is producing because it's kind of, it's the great power uh, 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 aspect of, of Russian nationalism. Is it fair to call Putin a supremacist in, in, in terms of, of, of anything? I mean, he's, is he just a status or is he, all, is he, can we say he's a supremacist in terms of race or culture or is, it, is he really not thinking in those terms? Oh, I would say he's nothing in these terms. He's really a statist, a dirjavnik, as we said in Russia, and a proponent of Russia, the great power, and the Russian state as a kind of powerful state uh, at home. He's really not supportive of ethnic nationalism. On the contrary, he had a lot of, uh, in many of his speeches, his discourses, he has always been very critical of nationalism as a force that can destroy the unity of Russia, meaning both nationalisms by ethnic minorities and Russian nationalism against ethnic minorities. So for him, nationalism is a force of destruction of Russia. So in any case, he can be associated with anything that would be kind of promoting ethnic nationalism or any kind of race-related uh, uh, issues. And I think many people who tend after 2014 and during the Crimea crisis to interpret uh, uh, Putin's speech on Crimea, think, uh, this, uh, uh, mentioning the, the defense of Russia abroad as being a kind of shift toward ethnic nationalism, I think that's a wrong interpretation. It's just one argument among the many that the Russian state can uh, uh, utilize what he needs to justify a strategic action. But if you follow what the Kremlin has been doing, they don't really care about Russian minority abroad, except when they need to exert geopolitical pressure on another state. So the real goal is the geopolitical pressure for strategic reasons. It's not the defense of ethnic mi of Russian minorities for the purpose of it. So for me, Putin is not a nationalist in that sense. He's really a statist. Is there any merit 
to nationalist claims that Russians are an oppressed ethnic group anywhere in the Russian Federation? Because this is, you know, you mentioned, if I'm correct, this is sort of a grievance that we see in people like Navalny. And, and in fact, Mikhail Sveda, who's a self-described libertarian, as far as I know, he doesn't really self-identify as a nationalist per se, but he's now taken up this mantle of Russian lives matter. And while he claims that it has civic sort of meaning when he uses the phrase he if you follow him on twitter and you follow people like him on twitter they often will complain about migrant workers essentially kind of benefiting from affirmative action or some kind of preference from the state and they'll often recall chechnya as an example where you know ethnic russians are supposedly discriminated against are there grounds for those claims or is it it's the same as sort of uh white people in the United States saying that they're the victim of racism? Is, is, is it, is it, does it have the kind of same legitimacy or what do you think? So what is interesting is that it was exactly the same claims during Soviet times, right? When you had all these groups of Russian nationalists who were complaining about the Soviet federal structure are in fact oppressing the Russian nation and kind of exhausting the Russian nation because it was giving to all the other republics. And now you have the same narrative, but for the size of Russia. And I think it has just no claim. I mean, ethnically, Russian are the majority. Uh, Russian language is clearly promoted at all the level in, in the school and educational system. The Russian Orthodox Church is becoming more and more visible in the public space. So the, the only claim that is legitimate, but not in the way they interpret it, is that some of the North Caucasian region, like Chechnya, are receiving a lot of federal subsidies. But that's not specific to Chechnya. Right now, it's Crimea who is receiving the most of, of federal subsidies. It can be the North, it can be the Far East in some occasions. So, so that's usually one of their main criticism. But that doesn't really explain. That doesn't really justify the the feeling of being oppressed. And now, with Crimea being the one receiving the most subsidies, you could see it's. Exactly Exactly the contrary. It's a region that is promoted as a symbol of of Russianness uh, against the West and against Ukraine that is receiving uh, uh, the money. And in terms of relationship to uh, uh, labor migrants here too, I mean, labor migrants are living in very difficult condition, and you cannot really say. I mean, the the the, the migration regime in Russia is not a tough one compared to what you have in Western Europe or in Europe globally. It's a quite liberal one, but it's so corrupt. That, that the way the, the labor migrant can work in Russia is very difficult. So another point that Navani is also making, and he also, the point is right, but the connection to the claim on nationalism is wrong, is that the level of corruption of law enforcement agencies is so high in Russia that it allows migrants to function undocumented, which is true. But that doesn't make the claim of law enforcement agencies acting in favor of labor migrants and oppressing ethnic Russian any kind of legitimate. So you see, they use, they use the way the federal system is working and they use the corruption of the world system that they want to denounce, but then they, which is, which are true, but then they reinterpret it in their favor of an ethnic nation being, of a Russian ethnic nation being discriminated. It's not. I mean, everybody in Russia can be victim of corruption or law enforcement agency. There is no ethnic criteria in it. Is there a form of institutionalized racism or, or prejudice in, in Russia? Like, how does it manifest if it's not in the if, if, it, um, if it's not against ethnic Russians, which is what nationalists, Russian nationalists will say? And if the system isn't explicitly against particular minorities, like how does institutionalized racism manifest in Russia in, in, in law enforcement, let's say? Well, I think it's, you see that the problem to name everything, I mean, to discuss institutionalization in Russia, that the level of corruption and informal practices is so high that institutionalization is not exactly the term that probably describe the best, that you have informal practices clearly targeting labor migrants from Central Asia and targeting North Caucasians who are legal Russian citizens, but who often find themselves in the same situation as if they were uh, uh, foreigners when they are outside the North Caucasus in the other region of Russia. That is, of course, one of the big fixtures of law enforcement agencies. At the same time, if you compare with the same practices of discrimination, like just by, by physical appearance that you can find in Europe, I'm not sure it's clear very different. I think it's the same processes of having law enforcement agencies used to always target the same minority that they identified as being the one that can be undocumented, the one that can be involved in any kind of, of uh, shadow economy scheme and so on. So they have this tradition in Russia also to usually yeah, target um, 
uh, labor migrants from Central Asia and, and, and North Caucasian. Of course, the level of violence is sometimes, uh, is probably, depending on the years and depending on the cities, is, is quite high. But here also, it's very difficult to get data first, right, about uh, police violence uh, uh, in Russia because very few labor migrants would go to the police or to an NGO to report that they had uh, a difficult time with, with, uh, with the police. Uh, uh, with a policeman uh, in Russia. Uh, law enforcement agency in the US have a be longer tradition of, of kind of racial violence. In Russia, first, it's not interpreted as racial, it's interpreted as ethnic, because the term of race and the notion of race is not really the one used in, in Russia. It's really more about ethnicity. And it's usually yeah against labor migrants from Central Asia and North Caucasian. But here again, compared to Europe, I think you would see the same tradition in law enforcement agency. It's just that when they try to regulate that, you don't have the same civil society, you know, uh, um, you don't have the same capacity of civil society to put pressure on law enforcement agencies as you would have in the West. You don't have the same accountability, you don't have, uh, have the same transparency. But the way policemen act in Russia toward labor migrants wouldn't be so different from what you would see in other places in, in the West, in Western countries. To clarify, when we talk about police violence against migrant workers and against ethnic minorities in Russia. Like, what are we actually, what literally are we talking about? You mentioned corruption, so I assume there's a lot of solicitation of bribes. Um, I, I mean, I, we're probably talking about cops actually beating people up. What are the examples of violence that occur in, in Russia that are ethnically motivated? So bribe is, of course, I mean, if we can define bribe as a violence, it is, of course, the, the main interaction between law enforcement agencies and labor migrants. But otherwise, there have been some violence. So people arrested in the street and being beaten. Uh, law enforcement agencies going to some construction places and controlling everybody and beating people if they don't have, you know, if you, they see they are not uh, uh, legally uh, registered. So the, the, these kind of, of, uh, of things. But I think the majority cases is really like not helping migrant to register. For example, migrant going to the, 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 the OVR administration trying to get all their paper and not being able to get registered. And then they got arrested and they are in this kind of gray zone where they cannot explain that they couldn't fulfill <laughs> their duty of being registered even if they wanted. And that's really the, the main issue, I think, in Russia more than, than police violence. In Russia, is there any civil society in place that would speak up on behalf of migrant workers the way there is in the United States? Are there people putting signs in their window saying, you know, we welcome all peoples and so on? Like, you know, I, I live in New Haven, Connecticut, and I walk around and I see signs written in five languages. There's like Arabic, Spanish, and I don't know, like they're they're signaling to their to the public that they support immigrants. And it's a very, you know, kind of enlightened, liberal, kind of left-wing thing that people do. It's a bumper sticker for your yard, essentially. But it's a very present kind of civic position. Is there anything like that in Russia? No, not at all. And so you have several reasons for that. The, w the first one is that the level of xenophobia toward migrants is quite high in Russia. So you will not find a lot of people just being by nature sympathetic toward migrants. People may, may be indifferent, and that's already good. Being positive, it would be very a minority and being defensive is really the majority. If you look at uh, numbers, so numbers declined during the Ukrainian crisis and now are going up again. It's like 80% of people in Russia consider that there are too many labor migrants, that there should be a visa regime, that they are destroying things, that you cannot count on them, that they are, you, I mean, all the, the, the classic thing, they take job, they are dirty, whatever you, you, you can have. So you wouldn't have a kind of, you cannot identify in Russia this kind of leftist part, let's say, of the society that would suddenly kind of solidarize. And then the other, the other level is that even among the liberals, even among those who are against the Putin regime, those who consider that the regime is corrupt, that the regime is authoritarian, very few would be also kind of pro-migrant. Look at Navalny. Navalny, the main opponent in Russia, and his narrative, his discourse on, on migrant is an ultra xenophobic one, right? And so you have also a large part of the liberal movement who just doesn't care about migrant issues. You have few NGOs that try, but they are really like very, very small NGOs. They do a great job, but their job is really very difficult to do because they go not only against the mainstream opinion, but they go also against the 
other liberals with whom they could uh, advocate. If you look at the big protest of 2011-12, there was almost nothing about migrants. There was no difference of migrants. There was no migrant association. One of the big differences between the US and Russia in terms of the potential for mobilization around issues of ethnicity and race is that, of course, Russia doesn't have a tradition of segregation. On the contrary, Russia has a tradition of ethnic mixity. That's a legacy of being an empire. And very often, Russians are quite happy and proud to mention the mixed ethnic roots of their family. The second important element is that white supremacism per se in Russia is really a marginal movement inside the broader Russian nationalism spectrum. The majority of the Russian nationalist movement still have either an imperial or at least a great power emphasized on what Russia, what they want Russia to be. It's really more about Russia as a civilization, Russia as the geopolitical power against the West, Russia as being its own civilization. And in that case, the imperial legacy of ethnic mixity is really important, more than a, a, a kind of stress on the purity. The issue of purity is totally, is largely absent from, from the Russian cultural tradition, especially inside the, this Russian nationalism movement. So the potential for mobilization around ethnicity in Russia is quite limited. It doesn't mean it's non-existent because xenophobia is quite high. But I would say that compared to the U.S., it's really playing in a totally different level and in a much more, it's playing a much more modest role. The quickest way to describe what the alt-right is, is that it is the name for and the descriptor for the newest generation of especially American white nationalists and white supremacists. That's Casey Michelle, a journalist who investigates corruption in Western dealings with former Soviet states. He's currently writing a book about kleptocracy, and he's an expert in the American alt-right, which in some respects could be described as a kind of ugly or uglier cousin to Russian nationalism. Casey told me what these guys are all about. I say it's the the branding because that's exactly what it is. Um, The name alt-right popped up uh, a couple years ago as a conscious or conscientious effort by these new faces of this kind of millennial white supremacist generation uh, to not brand themselves as their fathers or their grandfathers, generation of white supremacists. You know, they aren't skinheads. They aren't. Uh, the KKK, they aren't, in their minds and their views, the heirs of that specific strain of really, you know, violent, virulent, in-your-face, you know, easy-to-dismiss kind of scummy, scumbag, scuzzy, scuzzy uh, uh, white supremacists that have been part of the kind of American story for generations and generations ever since the founding uh, of the country. It is short for, alt-right is short for alternative right, because for these young white supremacists, they were trying to brand themselves as, rather than white supremacy, white nationalism in and of itself, a variant of the modern American conservative movement. In that sense, the next generation of the American conservative movement. These aren't Bush Republicans. These aren't Reagan Republicans. These aren't even necessarily Republicans in and of themselves. The other thing about the branding for the alt-right is, you know, again, just as the earlier generations of American white supremacists, the KKK and their hoods, uh, you know, all white, you know, militias in their, in their camo outfits and in their, you know, kind of, you know, long rifles or cowboy hats or whatever they were wearing. The alt-right preferred to present themselves as this kind of clean cut, again, vantage of version of modern American conservatism. So they preferred suits, right? They preferred clean haircuts. They preferred to be clean shaven. They tried to put forth all of these trappings of presentability, approachability, you know, professing to be simply interested in expanding modern American conservatism in new ideological directions. No, they weren't necessarily white nationalists. No, of course they weren't necessarily white supremacists. But if that's what their policies led to, well, who are we to say no? You said that they, their rhetoric, in their rhetoric, they say they're not white supremacists, but their policies are effectively that. Like, what are some of their policies? So their policy proposals center largely on uh, immigration, 
and rolling back the kind of immigration regime that the U.S. has known since uh, 1965. What happened in 65? 65, the U.S. passed, the, the Johnson administration passed uh, immigration reform that removed racial uh, or ethnic quotas, racial or ethnic quotas uh, for immigrants and instead opened it up on a skills-based or family-based uh, basis. That is to say that it didn't matter if they were from China or from India or from uh, Namibia or from uh, you know Grenada in the Caribbean, as long as they met certain skills-based qualifications or if their family members were already in the U.S., American citizenship could be open to them. So that is to say, that is what broke open what had previously been an emphasis on a white ethnic makeup, ethnocentrism in the U.S. It was that 65 reform that led the U.S., down a completely different and far more multi-ethnic, multi-racial path that we've seen over the last, now, whatever it's been, five and a half decades. Where do, do libertarians fit into this anywhere? Because, you know, Mikhail Sveta, this guy that appeared on The Naked Pravda last week, he's a self-identified libertarian. But, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a libertarian scholar, or a scholar of any kind for that matter, but, but my reading of, of a lot of his comments about, I don't know, racial identity, they don't necessarily strike me as purely libertarian. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't know, in, in your in your reading of when you're when you're following the alt-right, are American libertarians involved in all at all in that or did they are they a very different breed? I don't want to say that all libertarians find themselves naturally gravitating toward the alt-right. You know, the who was it? Justin Amash, the Michigan congressman who was uh, considering running on the libertarian ticket. By no means alt-right whatsoever, never professed any of those views through and through economic libertarian. But there's definitely, there definitely was, and I'm sure still is, but certainly was in 2014, 2015, 2016, a very clear pipeline from parts of the American libertarian movement, especially on the younger side, into and toward the alt-right. And we see that especially with um, people who supported, again, the kind of under 30, under 35 crowd in the U.S., people who had previously supported individuals like Ron Paul out of um, Texas, the former Texas congressman who's always been a, a cantankerous guy with, um, uh, at, the, at, the, at the best, questionable, at the worst, incredibly noxious ideas pertaining to things like race uh, and the um, uh, uh, usage of or growth of, uh, you know, the welfare state and welfare-based programs in the U.S. That's where the overlap between the libertarian and the alt-right strains really overlap is as it pertains to American uh, Social Security and federally funded programs, things like Medicaid things like e even paying for, for school meals for, in their eyes, uh, predominantly non-white American populations. Um, you know, the, the overlap between the alt-right and the, on the younger end, the, the alt-right and libertarians uh, is within that kind of economic space. It seems kind of ironic that so much of the libertarian thought process seems to be, don't put me in any group. I'm not in a group. I'm an individual. You know, I'm independent of the system. And it's like, okay, I sympathize with that. I don't like people telling me what to do. But then there's an undercurrent of, but we're, I'm, we're the whites here. The whites are doing their thing and we're mobilizing here against the oppression. So it's like, it's, it's like, wait, hold back up, back up. <laughs> wait, I thought you were an individual a minute ago. This applies to any number of political movements or political communities or political parties, a form of very clear cognitive dissonance that, uh, numerous prominent libertarian voices, to say nothing of their followers, have exhibited over the last few years, or at least in this kind of post-2014 world, that uh, you know, allowed and encouraged a lot of formerly libertarians into this kind of alt-right pipeline uh, that really flourished in this you know, 2014, 15, 16 uh, world. In terms of, of entanglements with, with Russia, between, well, really between both, between the United States and Russia, should... Americans be more concerned about Russian right-wing influence or should Russians be more concerned about American right-wing influence? Unfortunately, those in, um, uh, uh, individuals in Russia, from my vantage, should be more concerned about the American far-right movement, not only because it has um, uh, uh, far more kind of international networking in terms of the kind of uh, interplay between voices in different countries that American far-right organizations, especially things like Christian fundamentalist groups, have been able to kind of bankroll, have been able to set up and been able to organize. But because we, we've already seen examples of American far-right voices, especially those Christian fundamentalist groups, go over to Russia and be the ones to 
author and to push the kind of anti-LGBT legislation, anti-abortion legislation, pro-traditional family, quote unquote, legislation that we've seen take root under Putin's, well, you know, the 2012 to 2018 presidential term. That kind of conservative pivot was very much propelled with the help of a number of prominent far-right American voices. And I, I can't think of anything, but I can't think of any comparable major legislative push that folks in the Kremlin have enacted in the U.S., let alone one as kind of heinous as we saw these American voices pushing uh, in, you know, circa 2010, 2011, 2012 uh, uh, Russia. Started from uh, the uh, time Nadia and uh, Masha, uh, as members of Pussy Riot, spoke, uh, spent in prison. Obviously, everyone very, very well knows how that came to be. You're listening to Peter Verzilov, who's an activist in the protest punk rock and performance art group Pussy Riot. I'm sure you've heard of it, and the publisher of the website Mediazona, a remarkable news outlet that focuses on Russia's justice system. When I spoke to Mikhail Svetov last week, we discussed his Russian Lives Matter initiative, which is ostensibly against police brutality. But I didn't take any time in that episode to talk about other far better established and sustained campaigns that investigate and challenge abuses by Russian law enforcement. Mediazona is one of these projects. Peter told me that the project was born in the prison experiences of Pussy Riot's two most famous members, Nadezhda Telekonakova and Maria Alyokhina, or... Nadia and Masha. Towards the second part of their prison term, towards the end, uh, they both started encountering serious problems in uh, prisons. And obviously, it is well known that Russian prison system is like a massive uh, place uh, where people are routinely tortured, beaten up, abused, etc., etc., etc. And uh, both girls, Nadia and Masha, launched their own campaigns to fight against that in their uh, own prison facilities. They were um, using all sorts of psychological pressure that they could imagine to be used to at the girls. And this culminated in Nadia's prison boss in one point telling her that, you know, if you're going to keep behaving the way you are, you, we're going to murder you here and like you're going to be dead soon. And obviously, uh, as... We understood that those were words that probably won't uh, be followed after, but just the fact that Nadia's prison boss allowed himself to use this language and to move to threatening her made us launch this huge campaign against Nadia's prison facility. And it all started with Nadia kind of sort of breaking the... Uh, the silence and writing this big letter about the abuses she saw in her facility uh, during like the, more than a year that she's been there. And this suddenly was picked up virtually by everyone in Russia. And it was one of those few and very rare situations when Russian television and essentially federal authorities that were not connected with the prison system, that they decided that it would be uh, more beneficial for them to side with Nadia and actually kind of not play off, but uh, go along with the accusations that Nadia put forward. So uh, there was this massive campaign that was launched and it culminated in uh, Nadia's prison bosses being forced to talk, uh, to be on one of those stupid cheesy shows on Channel One, essentially saying like, you know, we don't, no, we don't really torture people and make them work 20 hour days for nothing. That is not true. And then the host would be like, wait, wait a second, but you have all these people just saying that, you know, they got released last week and that's exactly what they were doing. And they're like, no, no, those are all just lies. So, uh, uh, there were these incredibly funny shows on Russian state television, which essentially proved Nadia's point and really were the first time since uh, publication of Solzhenitsyn's works that the whole of Russia was like really, really following situations with prison abuse specifically. And so this was a major, a major victory in just putting spotlight on these, on issues of abuse in, inside the prisons. And so when the girls won a couple of months, so Nadia won that battle, obviously. And when a couple of months later, both girls got out of prison, we decided that we have to carry on this legacy 
and uh, form a media company which basically would pay specific attention to what is happening inside Russian prisons, inside Russia's police system, and in other places where law enforcement abuses Russians. So this is exactly what happened, and that's how MediaZona was created, sort of on the aftermath of all the human rights battles that uh, the Pussy Riot girls were facing while they were in prison. Because of Verzilov's involvement in MediaZona and Pussy Riot, two projects that have done a great deal to raise public awareness in Russia about police brutality and abuses of power by law enforcement, I asked him what he thinks about Russian Lives Matter as a localized response to the Black Lives Matter movement that began in the United States. I'm very, very much against appropriating the uh, black, original Black Lives Matter slogan in any way, whether in the U.S., where uh, people uh, sometimes, I think, in an extremely stupid way, saying, oh, let's not say Black Lives Matter, it's all lives matter. I think that's probably the stupidest thing you can do, because Black Lives Matter stands to talk about a very specific problem of institutional racism in the United States, and it, like, you shouldn't take away the meaning and transform it into something else which is just not there. And uh, so in, in the same way, uh, Russian Lives Matter is an even more kind of postmodern, weird and stupid uh, appropriation of the original slogan, which, you know, I think uh, has uh, the main aim to just, you know, get some of the spotlight uh, in a weird way from the uh, events happening in the U.S. and all other parts of the world. It's a very stupid hashtag. And uh, I just feel that... Um, all the, the fight against when you fight against police brutality, you shouldn't appropriate slogans from other campaigns that completely twist and destroy their meaning. Verzilov also recalled the Kremlin's early flirtations with Russian nationalism, citing the militant organization of Russian nationalists, the members of which committed multiple murders and allegedly collaborated in part with members of the Russian presidential administration. It should be noted that Russian nationalism and like even Russian fascism as it, as it appeared in Russia in its newest form in late 90s was, was grown up and created essentially inside the Kremlin specifically because the uh, deputy head of the presidential administration, Vladislav Surkov, thought that that would be a great and fun way to control uh, the liberal opposition and other pro-Western political groups. So they specifically were helping and supporting and growing and nurturing various Russian national groups. And this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. It's a fact that it was essentially proven in court when one of the leaders of uh, the uh, one of the most deadliest uh, nationalist groups, Ilya Garachev, when in court, he was given statements about his contacts with the presidential administration. And he got a life sentence after that for uh, conspiring and organizing the murder of several people. Peter's comments about this homicidal group got me thinking, and I asked Marlene Laurel about it. Is that evidence of Putin's nationalism or his, his xenophobia, or was that a, another kind of purely utilitarian arrangement? And if so, what was the point? Why would they ever want to work with skinheads? I think it's a pure utilitarian uh, mechanism, and the Kremlin has been using and trying to co-opt every grassroots movement he can whatever the, the ideological content of this movement is. They can try to co-opt liberal, they can try to co-opt Russian nationally, they can try to co-opt whoever, because that's the way the regime functions, by slowly trying to co-opt groups so it kind of stay in tune with the society's evolution. And of course, toward Russian nationalism, it's a big issue for the Kremlin because they always have this feeling that there is a competition of for legitimacy around nationalism. And so they were, have always been kind of worried by the way nationalists could be played, right? Liberals clearly are considered as opponent. Nationalists can be both partner of the state or opponent also. So that's why they are the one that the government, the, the, the Kremlin has been trying to, to play with. I think it was, so it was specific moment in time and very often either it's the, some section of the presidential administration or it's the regional or the municipal level. So it's very different depending on the cities and the region. There were some partnership, for example, with some um, other far-right groups and some local law enforcement agency. The Cossacks, of course, constitute a specific uh, uh, groups because they have an official status as a kind of paramilitary kind of militia group that can work in some cities really jointly with the police, in, especially in southern uh, Russia, in cities like, like uh, Krasnodar. 
and very often in that case, Kodaks can be used to kind of go and beat uh, not so much migrant only now, but all the kind of cultural opponent, LGBT, feminist, uh, whoever. So, so it's an instrumental use. Of course, very often experts were like, well, it's a dangerous Pandora box. Uh, 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 mechanism, but so far the Pandora box has been reclosed each time. So when the when the, the Kremlin needed to open the Pandora box of Russian nationalism, they did open it, but then they were able to close it each time. And the Russian nationalists so far now are really kind of, they are marginalized. They are not popular. They are repressed. So, so the, the way the state control these groups works so far pretty well. To get another perspective on Russian Lives Matter, I spoke to Kirill Medvedev, a poet and a musician who's also very politically active in Russia's opposition. On social media, he's attracted some notice for his criticisms of the Russian Lives Matter hashtag initiative. It's a typical nationalist opinion that this word Russiani is something very new and not organic and all that. So the problem is that we have two different words in Russian. That we have the word Ruski and we have the word Rasiski. And we have just only word in English, you know, Russian. So we have this word Ruski. It has three basic meanings. Firstly, Ruski is like a person who has Russian ethnic origin. And secondly, it's a person with some kind of Russian cultural identification. And thirdly, it's a Ruski as a Russian citizen. And for this third meaning, we also have a special word, Russiani, which is also put in English like Russians, unfortunately. And sometimes it's a good thing for some tricks and manipulations. But anyhow, Russians in any meaning of the word are not the object of oppression as Russians. Russian lives matter. Of course, Russian lives matter. Like French lives matter. Like Brazilian lives matter or whatever. But... If you take this slogan, it obviously means that some national oppression from within or from abroad is meant. Maybe, maybe we Russians as a country are oppressed by some co colonial power. No, Russia itself as a kind of regional imperialist. Maybe we, may, maybe we somehow oppressed by some ethnic or cultural majority. No, no, we are, we are, we ourselves is a majority here in Russia. Well, but maybe we are oppressed by some ethnic minority. Well, some, somebody, somebody can say maybe, but this point of view has more to do with some kind of ultranationalism and maybe Nazism sometimes than with any kind of civic and inclusive idea of the nation. And if this guy also supports Donald Trump in his aspiration to ban Antifa, as Mikhail Svetov does, he supports Trump in this aspiration, then it's quite clear. So what we have here actually is aberration of good old agenda of Russian nationalists who are always trying to mark ethnic Russians as victims of some kind of oppressions, whether it's oppression by Jews or by Soviet state or by liberal intelligence uh, or by some ethnic minorities or by migrant workers or by Chechnya or by cultural Marxists or whatever. And their idea is finally to separate somehow Russian people from all their inner enemies, probably to build some pure ethno-national state, or at least they try to promote this vision of Russian nation as a kind of base, as a leader or as a melting pot for all other nations who are living here. And this ambiguity with the world Russian just helps to promote this agenda. And in the same very time, it helps to secure yourself from accusation of being xenophobic or being Nazi. So when some Tatar or Chuvash or some other guy or a girl from ethnic minority ask you, what do you mean by Russians? When you promote this slogan, when you promote the slogan, Russian lives matter, do you mean me also or I'm excluded? And you answer him or her, of course, you are in because we are just all Russians here. And 
at the same time you give a wink to Russian nationalists who, for whom lives of minorities matters much less. And of course it's a politics, but it's a bad sort of politics. It's national politics which substitutes the interests of the whole civic nation by the supposed interests of its biggest group. They're doing this invocation of a sanitized Martin Luther King, which one limits the the strength of his work, but also Martin Luther King was incredibly progressive. That's Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, the history instructor we heard from on last week's episode about her research into African-Americans living in the USSR and minority scholars in Slavic studies. In that last interview, she hadn't yet heard Mikhail Svetov's podcast comments about Black Lives Matter and Russian Lives Matter. I asked her to parse his interpretation of the U.S. civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. She says that the treatment MLK gets from right-wing commentators in both Russia and the U.S. is particularly misleading. He's talking about wealth inequality and poverty and social issues that are directly connected to, you know, racial inequality in the United States. And to just clean him up and say, oh, he was all nice and he didn't, you know, cause riots. The man was, you know, imprisoned. He was put in jail because people were unhappy with his protest. And at the end of the day, he was murdered for his activism. So it doesn't matter if you are protesting or rioting, whatever we decide the, you know, the word's going to be of the day. The man was still murdered because he was, you know, claiming the rights that every American citizen was supposed to be able to have, thanks to the Constitution, he was saying African-Americans should be treated like human beings. And so his comments didn't surprise me because, I mean, we do still see this when you have Ted Cruz trying to evoke MLK to, you know, say, why can't protests be peaceful when people forget they stopped traffic in the 1960s, you know? And we see this also in American teaching of the civil rights movement. And I'm a former secondary teacher in which a lot of times we have to teach because it's in the curriculums. MLK supported peaceful protests, but Malcolm X supported violent protests. And you're supposed to dichotomize these two black men when actually, you know, Malcolm X does change his, you know, the means of his protest later on, but also they fail to recognize that the violence is reacting to extreme violence. And so we see that now, why can't protesters be nice? But I mean, clearly, like when Colin Kaepernick, all the man did was kneel and people acted like he had physically threatened them. So it's just a throwaway comment to delegitimize a protest that has very clear, um, you know, cause and also is saying, hey, this situation is wholly inappropriate and we demand to be treated like equal citizens. So yeah, it, it's the comments. I mean, there it's the same, you know, well-washed and well-worn comments we've been saying since the 1960s. Why can't people protest peacefully when the result is, no matter how you protest, sometimes you end up assassinated. Kimberly says it's actually really a shame that activists and public figures like Svetov can't find common cause with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. today. There's a way to do this without appropriation, she says. I think it also is sad because Svetov recognized, you know, instead of calling Black Lives Matter so decisive, instead of worrying so much about the worth of property, instead of the worth of human life, that he actually has a foundation from which he could speak to this greater movement of, no, we are not having police brutality because of our race. But at the end of the day, we both are suffering some from systems that are using systematic violence against those they think they seem to be a danger, whether that's a black body and a brown body in the United States or a political opposition leader in Russia, what you have is the state monopoly using its monopoly on violence to take out those, it seems, you know, are a danger. And I think that is something that Svetov and the people who are using Russian Lives Matter, you know, to support these nationalistic aims, they're really missing out on something. Like this is clearly, for me at least, the these protests, this is the last ditch effort. If you go to, you know, policy, it hasn't worked. If we protest silently, it hasn't worked. Nothing else has worked. But once people have been out in the streets, now we're actually seeing some type of change. And so that's the unfortunateness of this constant focus on, you know, rioting and looting. I mean, you can call it that if you want to, but do understand that you are using that language to delegitimize people who are tired 
of being, you know, actively oppressed by, you know, these different institutions. And that's something I feel like many people in Russia can actually support because they've experienced it. It's it, For me, it's a missed opportunity. But also, like, you don't get to use the language of Black Lives Matter, a movement that comes from, you know, Black pain and Black death. You don't get to use that hashtag and say Russian Lives Matter just because you want, you know, Western media to pay attention to you. It's an incredibly cynical way to approach a very genuine issue. And that's what made me sad is that you do have these situations. And and I mean, at the very, what we have here, especially with Svetov's comments about Russian history and, you know, this, oh, well, we weren't, we didn't have racial problems. And if we did, they weren't very long, their imperial period. It's like, at, at best, it's ignorance of Russian and Soviet history, but it seems like purposeful, you know, obfuscation. If you erase the experience of these people of color in the region, that means you can deny them their right to be in that place, right? And I think that's something that's really important. And when you deny Russia's colonial history and its oppression of other nationalities, and you know, Kazakhs and Uzbeks and Tajiks and the Ukrainians, and, you know, when you deny that, it's really easy to say, well, I don't understand why people are so upset. I mean, put, you know, the shoe on the other foot. One can ask Vetov, well, why are you protesting? Why are you angry? Why are you in the streets against the Russian government? Right? It's because you feel like something fundamentally wrong has happened to you. And the only way of seeking a remedy for that is being out in the street and making it public. Right? So I think if he would set aside those nationalistic ideas and stop hiding behind, you know, these white supremacist slogans, he would understand and see that there is an opportunity there that he should take advantage of. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we looked at Russian nationalism, activism in Russia against police brutality, and the American alt-right. We also returned to remarks by Mikhail Svetov from the previous episode of this podcast for some context and fact-checking that went missing last week. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>